Does anybody in here own a portable pizza oven? Anybody? In each service, I've had somebody, like two so far each service. I need like five or six for a thing I want to do. Anybody? It's like propane, portable pizza oven? Yeah, hook propane in it, it heats up to like 700 degrees, and you make pizzas in it? I know you can rent them, but I'm trying to save us some money here. No? That's weird. I figure you guys would be the ones that have them because you guys are all like the, the hip people who are like, we're going to go to the Blaze and we're going to have the oven fired pizza and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Maybe that's just it. You're like, you never eat at home. You're always eating out. Maybe learn how to live on a budget and buy a pizza oven so Element can borrow it. But anyway, I'll just leave that there. <laughs> if you have one, you're afraid to raise your hand because you thought I'd make fun of you. I won't. But uh, you can let me know later. Uh, oh, second thing I got, or third thing now, is that next week after every service, we're having a meeting about baptisms. If you are interested in being baptized at Element, uh, next week after every service, so you have to remember what time it is that I make the meeting. After every service, we're having a short informational baptismal meeting. And in that meeting, what we will talk about is whether you want to get baptized. We're doing a smaller one in about five weeks. Then we're going to do a large one at the end of summer. We really want people to be baptized at the large one with everybody there. We do try dip and bread, so when we dunk you, you may, you may die of a heart attack when you eat it all, but it'll be awesome. Uh, <laughs> no, it wouldn't be awesome. It'd be really weird if, oh, no. So forget I said it was awesome. It wouldn't be awesome. Gosh, anybody got a pizza oven? No, okay. <laughs> but if you would like to get baptized, let us know. We'll tell you what it kind of entails and what we need from you and, and that kind of stuff. So next week, after every service, it's just the meeting. You're not going to walk out of it and get baptized. It, the, the baptism is like a month after that, and the other one's at the end of summer. But if you'd like to, go to those meetings. Boy, I sound like a total weirdo right now. So if you are new to Element, Welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes to go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. Well, some questions to help you also go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events and Uversion. We should come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements. You'll get everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read you all the verses we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about them during it, but these are all the verses we're going through. Ecclesiastes 4, 4 through 8. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you, love you, live in the grace that you have provided, and that we would begin to see this world around us as you do, and that we wouldn't worry so much about where our value comes from, because we know it comes from you. And as we rest and trust in that, it would change in how we live and, and live out your great grace in the world around us, that we would love because you have first loved us, that we would show everyone who you are because you are and have been so good to us. Amen. Have a seat. 
All right, so we are doing this series of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new, this is week 11, so you only miss 10 weeks. Get the podcast. You can catch right up. It'd be awesome. Uh, if you have a Bible, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The book of Ecclesiastes keeps coming back to center on this idea of what happens if you got everything you ever wanted in life. If you made all of these goals and you attained all of those goals and you wake up the next morning and you're still you, then then what? What does that look like? And so it shows what life and work apart from who God is, is like when it's lived apart from him, under the sun, without him, and it ends up being this thing that he calls Vapor, vanity, meaningless. If you have an English Standard Version, the ones that we use at Element, it uses that word vapor. And sometimes I think the, or uses the word vanity. Sometimes the word vanity loses in our minds what it actually is because in our culture, vanity is something you stand in front of and wash your hands and look in the mirror. Right? And so it's like, oh, uh, it's, it's a vanity. No, a vanity is good if you think about it in the sense of staring at yourself and your own life and all that. But it really means is this idea, it's, it's a mist. It's like, oh, someone keeps... It's almost, it's almost broken. Like, this, is, this is what it's supposed to mean. It's the thing you can't really grab a hold or lay your hands on. You're not going to get it back in the bottle once it's gone. This is the idea of what he's trying to get to with that word vanity or meaningless. Now, I told you before when Tim Keller talks about Ecclesiastes, he relates the, the teacher to like a philosophy professor because all he does is seem to ask a lot of questions and try and get us to ask questions out of the questions that he has asked. And a lot of the questions refer to life and trying to get us to see the futile things that we run after in our own lives that end up being meaningless. Because many of the things that we strive after are going to mean nothing to us after we're dead and gone. And so his question is, why do we spend so much time trying to chase these things down when they're really, in the end, meaningless? I was reading this week, and I saw this guy who quoted this little girl who was reciting Psalm 23, which Psalm 23 is, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And she says, The Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. And I'm like, oh man, if we could just live that, that would be amazing. What she just said there, even her misquote, would be amazing. So many of us want so many things in life that in the end we forget it is Jesus that really matters. That all we need to live a full life and full life sense really comes from him. So what today Solomon's going to do, he's going to lead us further into the understanding of this with his questions by going back to something he has talked about before, and this is the idea of work. Uh, Solomon, what he will do throughout this now is he's going to start in the next few chapters making a lot of comparisons between one thing and another. People today love to make comparisons. This thing is better than that thing. The original movie is better than the sequel or the part two, unless it's Empire Strikes Back, then that one is, is better. Yeah, yeah! Luke loses a hand. Yeah! Right? It's the, it's the good one. Oh, sorry. Darth Vader is Luke's father. What? You get over it. All right. <laughs> uh, how, how about this one? Uh, I know Journey has a guy that sounds like Steve Perry, but he's no Steve Perry. Oh. You're like, who's Journey? Never mind. I'm old. That's how it works. Uh, how about this? Ford or Chevy? Ah, uh, oh, see, everybody's got an opinion. You compare him. Toyota. I got it. I know. I know. <laughs> What's better, football, baseball, basketball, soccer? See, you all got a comparison. It's better because you like it. So in order to, yeah, come back to me now. Come back to me. It's like, no, it's not a Chevy. Okay, I got it, okay. Pizza oven. Okay, so in, 
in order to show the way of wisdom in this, what they, in the Old Testament, a lot of people do this with comparisons. And they talk about the path of obedience. So they compare one thing to another. For example, Samuel in the Old Testament, when he wants to talk about how loving God is more important than simply going through religious motions, he will say in 1 Samuel 15, 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. And he's trying to show obedience versus sacrifice. When Solomon wants to show that a home full of love and grace is better than a home with fighting all the time, he will say in Proverbs 15, 17, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox with hatred with it. It's like better to eat vegetables where there's love than to eat steak with hatred. And I know sometimes I'm thinking, I might still try for the steak, right? Because I'm not a big vegetable fan, but, but whatever. So in chapter 4, Solomon's going to tell us it is better to live with contentment than envy. It's better to uh, work in partnership with other people than try and do life alone. So the first place he starts, Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Now, this is one of the greatest statements I think the Bible makes about the focus of our lives under the sun. And it is one that all of us are going to fight against. All labor and achievement comes from man's envy of his neighbor. Uh, One commentary I read said this. This is a radical biblical deconstruction of all secular understandings of economics. And what Solomon is saying here is that what motivates us is not typically the things that we think when we get really down to the, to the bottom of it. It's simply envy. Like, think about this. Capitalism, what it will do is use the engine of individuals in, uh, envying other individuals to build their economies. Communism and socialism will do the same thing, but with class warfare to build their economies. And that's not Solomon's point. I just think it's funny because we're always fighting one another, and yet in the end, anything based solely upon man is going to fail. So this first comparison is about contentment, and he will talk really the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes about this idea of contentment. But he starts with this observation of that working world. Everything that we do all skill comes from man's envy of his neighbor. Now Solomon is not so dense that he has already forgotten what he talked about in chapter 2 that work is a gift from God. What he's saying is that like all good gifts from God, work can be distorted by sin. So he's saying that much of our work is motivated by this thing called envy. Now you may want to disagree with me but let me show you what I think he is talking about in this. Uh, There is this desire to get ahead or to get something from somebody else. This isn't just about the evils of money or something like that. This is a motivation that comes out of a selfish heart where we're trying to get something from somebody else to fulfill our lives and it never ever can. And the scriptures constantly teach this thing that there's something wrong in our hearts. So everything that we do ends up in the end feeling unfulfilling. Now you could work just to do a good job and I'm not saying you can't do that. I think a lot of people sometimes start new jobs that way. I'm going to go in, I'm just going to do a good job. But after six months you sound like every other whiner at your job. I don't get paid enough. My boss is a jerk. How come this? How come that? We all start to sell. We all want to complain because everybody's a, a big whiner. You know, maybe start that way. Most people end up that way. Uh, you, you could just want to help people around you. You really could. I'm not saying you can't do that. Solomon's not saying you can't do that. But he says the primary reason that we work the way that we do for the things that we do is there's something deeply wrong in the human heart. Now we're ultimately trying to manufacture not a product, not a thing, but we're trying to manufacture an identity. Uh, a self, uh, some type of self-worth in this. And this is why when you talk to somebody else, sometimes our first question is, what do you do? What do you do? And sometimes people who don't have a job, they're like, well, and so they feel really awkward about that because we base a lot of our value on 
what we do. Not that there's anything wrong with asking that question, but that's kind of where we go with that. We're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves or to other people, but when we're proving ourselves to other people, it's because we get something back from them, some type of approval, which just shows that everything is really about ourselves. And yes, that sounds really bad because it is. Uh, Many times, that's what life and work become under the sun. We're not living for Jesus. It becomes centered upon ourselves and what we get. C.S. Lewis said something to the effect that we all have a deep identity vacuum. Like, think of an artist. And if you're an artist, I'm not picking on you. But artists, many times, are easy to pick on. Because you'll talk about some type of art. I'm not an artist. I'm an artiste. Okay, you're an artiste. Okay, so, and then, then it makes them very easy to, to make, make fun of. If you have an artist, many times they feel unappreciated. If they make a sculpture or a piece of art or something like that and nobody likes it, they feel terrible about themselves. Like, nobody liked this thing that I poured my life into. Now, if everybody likes something they did, they feel really good about themselves. Like, oh my goodness, yay, everybody likes it. And then they feel really good about themselves. This goes for all of us almost in everything that we do. Like, again, you are your art if you're an artist. If you're a business investor, you are your money and your portfolio and how well that thing does. If you own a business, many times you are your business. For influencers on the Internet, you are your brand. Many homeowners become their address. It really has this idea it's about ourselves, and that's the reason we're never satisfied. He says, all labor and all achievement springs from this need to go beyond our neighbor to get either the things they have or get them to give us what we think we need, their approval, uh, saying nice things about of liking us and who we are. And this really goes for everything Solomon has talked about in the book, from causes to pleasure to work. And I sometimes, I'll look up my neighbor's lawn or, or yard or house and these kind of things, and I don't want my people driving, I don't want people in my neighborhood driving by my house and going like, oh, that guy, he really needs to clean up his house. So I work really hard on my yard and car because I'm working because I envy my neighbor's approval of me. When my wife and I moved into the house that we own now, it, it was a pit. A lot of you helped make it nicer. Thank you very much if that was you. Um, but we're, the first day we're actually moving into this house, I got these two older guys from my neighborhood. They show up, and they walk in the front yard, and they start telling me all these things I need to do in my yard to make it better for them. I'm like, really? Right? It's, it's like, I pull out, and you got this tree. you got to trim this tree or take this tree out. And you know what I did? I trimmed the tree. I did. And then a few years later, I took the tree out. Why? Because this 90-year-old guy who can't see two feet in front of his face might drive by my house and be like, I like that guy. Like, that's what I'm thinking, right? What is wrong with that? I should just let the thing grow into the street and been like, yeah, take that. But I don't. He had a pizza oven. No. <laughs> no, I don't. Because I want them to like me. I want them to say nice things about me. And then sometimes, though, we get so tired of it, trying to get approval from everybody else. And so what do we do? We just, we just kind of give up. Instead of overworking, we underwork or don't work altogether, which is not good because it still started in the place of envying someone else and what we wanted them to give to us. It's all what Solomon is saying. Like, if you're, if you're simply working for recognition and you don't get the recognition, so you stop working for recognition, you're still doing the exact same thing based on the exact same reasons. You see where he's going? Makes a little more sense like that, right? Envy is not the only reason people work. And I don't think that's what he's trying to say because he's doing this comparison. But envy is a reason we do a lot of the things that we do, trying to get something from somebody else. And if we are honest, he has a point. One of the reasons we work so hard is to get something from somebody around us. And when he says neighbor, it's just not the person who lives next to you. This is anybody in your life you come into contact with. We're always trying to get something from our neighbors to make us feel better about ourselves. 
I mean, ultimately, most of the things we work so hard for in our lives are not things money can buy. But it never stops us from doing retail therapy. That's what I like to call it, retail therapy, buying things make us feel better. But we really want things, other people look at the things that we bought and say, oh, that's really cool. Oh, you got that thing. Because it makes us be like, yes, I got this thing. It's so great. We're always trying to do something to make ourselves feel better. Like, those who drop out of the envy race altogether are still living their lives as a result of the envy race. This is why Solomon says that those who drop out, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Uh, Derek Kidner, in his commentary on this, makes one of the best statements about this. He says, he is the picture of complacency and unwitting self-destruction. For this comment on him points out a deeper damage than the wasting of his capital. His idleness eats away not only what he has, but what he is, eroding his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. These verses describe two equal and opposite errors. As toil can be all-consuming, so idleness is self-cannibalizing. Oh, such a great line, and yet it's so true. And so I think a good question for all of us to ask ourselves today is, which side of this do we have a temptation towards? Right? Do we have, are we tempted to envy people on the way to try and get something from them, always wanting them to say nice things about us so we feel better about ourselves, so we do whatever we can to get that from them, and when we don't, we feel like we're just torn apart and are worth nothing, or do we go the other way? And do we just say, well, I don't care about anybody, and I don't care about anything, and I'm going to quit working altogether for all of this stuff. You're probably thinking, what's option three? Well, Solomon only gave you two, so you got to pick one. Which way do you kind of fall on that whole thing? Work, achievement, success, accomplishment. He tries to get us to see that life that is built upon work is not in the end where you find meaning. Not that work is not good. Work is great. We should all work. We should work hard and we should work well. But it is not where we are meant to ever find our ultimate meaning. Solomon has told us, no matter what we accomplish, in Ecclesiastes 2.21, a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it, someone who didn't work for it. He says, all those things that you worked so hard to get in your life... One day you are going to die and somebody else is going to get it and they're not going to care for it the way that you cared about that thing, whatever that thing is. It's why life based solely on work and achievement and what other people think never is going to bring satisfaction and it's not going to last. And people are fickle. One day you're their buddy and the next week you do something they don't like and they don't, they put their thumb down you on Facebook and whatever happens in that. Solomon has previously talked about how he undertook all these great projects and built houses and made gardens and parks and reservoirs to water all these groves of trees. He amasses silver and gold. He tries to create some sort of meaning under the sun so people would see the things that he did and say, wow, you're amazing. And seriously, thousands of years later, we still look back and we talk about some of the things that he did and the things that he amassed and the temple that he built. We still talk about this. And so when Solomon talks about all these great projects, he really in Ecclesiastes goes to the place where under the sun it all ultimately fails. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you shouldn't seek to be successful or anything like that. I think we should be successful. But what I'm saying is, and I think Solomon is saying, is that what success in our culture claims on the basis of its own terms fails completely. So to try to get you to see more of this, I don't want any of this to depress you, by the way. I don't think Ecclesiastes in the end is meant to be depressing. I think it's meant to open our eyes and get our eyes off of the things that do depress us and onto who God is and what he has done so we can live in hope and life and and grace again. So to tie this to some of the stuff that he's talked about previously with work and with this, I think we have to ask, what are the terms of success in our culture today? Like, why do we go through the pain of misery of schooling and jobs we don't even really like? 
And the answer is that we really expect our success and work to bring us satisfaction, to give us recognition, and to make a contribution. And I stole those from somewhere. I don't know where, but there you go. Okay. So I think we can ask three questions that surround that. Okay. And this is first, does work give satisfaction? And I think sometimes we want to say yes, but I think Solomon's trying to burst our bubble with that. Uh, secondly, does work bring recognition? And thirdly, does work actually make a contribution? Does work in the end leave a legacy? I think in the answer, if you honest, honestly answer those, the answer is no, because work doesn't bring those things. I think work can add to all of those things. I think it really can, but it does not alone bring them. So you start with the idea of satisfaction. Most books today that you read will tell you that you're not successful inside unless you're doing what you made to do. You're, you feel like you're created this, your, your passion, something that fits you. What does Solomon see when he looks inside? Ecclesiastes 2.22, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, that's the word for pain, and his work is a vexation, that's the word for grief. Even in the night his heart does not rest. So in our vernacular, when he's talking about pain here, pain would be the exertion to get things done. Get her done, right? That's, that's the thing. We work, even at the best of times, will wear you down. It will make you tired. Sometimes it's a good tired, but it's this pain of working through work and sometimes you're tired, even when it's going well. Uh, they did this study of a couple thousand people, and they asked them, if you had an extra hour in the day, like a 25th hour, what would you do with it? 85% of people said, sleep. Sleep. Because that's the pay. We're working a lot. We feel tired. I, I swear, if I got an extra hour, I would try to sleep, but I'd probably just lay looking at the ceiling because I wake up in the morning for no reason whatsoever, being like, if I could just get a pizza oven. No, I mean, I just, I just you know, looking up at the ceiling and just wondering what, what's going on with this, Right? That's the thing. It, it's pain even when you're working. And then at some point when he talks about this grief, it's that no matter how well things go, eventually at some point you're going to have disappointment. Your work is going to be evaluated by some expectation somewhere by something. And at some point you're going to have something that doesn't measure all the way up and it will fail. And this again speaks to how we value our worth. So work can bring pain even when it's good. When it's not going well, you get grief. And then at night you worry. Like, what's tomorrow going to bring? I'm going to have more pain, more grief, a little bit of both. Either way, it's bad. Solomon says, under the sun, work's going to involve pain and worry and grief. And the more that we try to simply build our lives on work and our careers and success, the more we're going to experience that kind of brokenness and that kind of isolation. This is just kind of on the inside. So Solomon says that there, there is some satisfaction that can come from work, but it's not what we're meant to base our fulfillment in life upon. It doesn't bring this soul satisfaction we're all craving. It doesn't bring the recognition we're really needing in the end. Ecclesiastes 4, 7, and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling, working? For whom am I working? And deprive myself of pleasure. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So he starts talking about somebody who is actually successful, who does have some recognition, but not the type that they really need. I read somewhere that uh, satisfaction is like the psychological payoff we're looking for. We feel satisfied, but then they said recognition is the social payoff we're looking for. We're looking for something to pay us back. Like, oh, I got recognized for these things that I did. Success doesn't always mean money because you can have success volunteering and doing things like that. But one thing we want success to mean in whatever we do is we want it to be esteem and approval and acclaim and recognition of how well we do something. Oh, look at that. You did things so great. You're awesome. That's, so That's a lot of what we want in what we do. So for us, like Solomon says, success in our world becomes based on this recognition. Oh, I finally got people to see 
see who I am. And this is why Ecclesiastes can be sobering and scary when you take it for what it actually says. Because here you got this guy who's done all these great things, and yet he is all alone. I think Solomon, when he writes this, he's kind of referencing himself and the things that he sees. You know, he, he has respect. Uh, but he doesn't have the respect that I think he really desires and craves deep down in his heart and life and soul. And yet he has all these things that working has, working has started destroying his life on all these different fronts. He talks about his family, that there's no one there. Solomon's the guy. He's got 700 wives and 300 concubines. If he just wanted to spend one day with each one, he couldn't see one of those, but like every three years. And so even in the midst of all of this, he's alone. He is so alone. His, his friends aren't there because his friends are probably like, hey, you want to go hang out? You want to this? You want to that? And he's probably like, no, I got a thousand wives I got to hang out with. You know, I mean, he's, he's probably like, he doesn't have time for anybody. He's got all these works that he's doing. He, he can't spend time. So his friends probably just stop asking. The way we work in our world today promises to bring us closer together. But what in the end it does when we focus on it is it isolates us from each other. And living and working for ourselves is one of the fastest ways, I think, to turn the American dream into the American nightmare. And Ecclesiastes has taught us that work can be a pleasure. Work can add to satisfaction, but not if we pursue it just for our own selfish purposes. To find pleasure in our work, we have to ask that question that Solomon does in verse 8 and come up with the right answer to it. Because the question he asks is, for whom am I toiling? For whom am I working? And that brings you to this idea of your contribution. Because again, everybody says to be really successful, you want to leave a legacy. We're going to talk about legacy in another week. But insofar as we work, we're told to make a difference. You have to be remembered for what goes on beyond you, what you're remembered for. As you got to tell you, everybody kind of looks this way at work. Karl Marx said this, labor is the very touchstone of man's self-realization. Henry Ford says, thinking men know that work is the salvation of the race, physically, morally, and socially. Work does not just make us a living, it gets us a life. Two people from entirely different views of how you see the world say the exact same thing about work. And Solomon falls into this trap, and he lives that same way. He comes out on the back side of it, and he looks at all that he had done, and he says, if this is all there is to life is this work, then it has no meaning at all. Because eventually the sun is going to burn up, and everything we've ever done is going to be gone. And the eons of time that come after us, it doesn't mean anything if this life is all that there is. And this is why, of all the questions Solomon asks, I think these are the most important. What are we striving for? What are we toiling for? Why do we work? What are we let, uh, letting give meaning to our lives and saying who we really are? And I think it has to go then back to verse 6 where he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And this, again, is a comparison, but it's a double. It's this quietness versus toil and striving. Uh, the NIV, if you have an NIV, it will actually use the word tranquility there because it's more than just simply being quiet. It's like this, this soul rest, this soul satisfaction that, that quiets us, that we don't have to be remembered for all of our achievements. It's a, it's a deeper thing that we are remembered because God himself is the one who remembers us. It's not toiling to try and have some type of contribution. It's that God has laid our value and our worth upon us and said who we are. Who are we toiling for? This is why Jesus says things like this. Luke 12, 6, and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What Jesus says is, you are remembered by God himself. All of these things you are striving after in your life. All these things you think are going to give you meaning, they don't give you meaning because it is God is the one who remembers you. 
It is He who speaks words of grace and hope over us. The more we try to make our lives meaningful through work, to build our lives and our success and our career, the more meaningless they'll seem. And eventually we're going to sound like Solomon. I hated life because we're not actually living life as God intended for us to live life. We're trying to live this pseudo thing inside of us. We're trying to get stuff from everybody else so we can get what we think we want and not what we truly need. And what we truly need is what God has spoken over us as his people. You know, experts today will tell you, you don't even need length of sleep. What you need is depth of sleep. You need like this REM sleep. Um, and, and this is interesting. I think when Solomon talks about this idea of quietness, this, this tranquility, I think that's like soul REM sleep, where, you're, where your soul can actually rest and have this depth of understanding of who God is and what he has done, where we don't have to keep trying to prove ourselves to everybody else. We have this deep, supernatural, divine quiet. I think it's why all the questions and places that Solomon keeps pushing for, all the answers are found in the rest of Scripture. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In all honesty today, you may be in here, you may not even believe in God at all. But what you have here is an analysis by one of the wisest men who ever lived. Like, you may not be religious, but we are all a people who are trying so hard to work for our own salvation, to find some type of value and meaning in what everybody else in the world says about us so we feel better about ourselves. Deep down, what the scriptures teach is that we're all trying to work off this internal debt that we know is there. We know something's wrong inside of us. And so instead of going deep, we try and blame everything around us. We blame our parents and our upbringing and our ethnic group. Hey, those Scottish people, you know, they burn easy and they're moody. That's my problem, right? We blame other ethnic groups for oppressing us. We blame our town, our church. But Ecclesiastes and the rest of the scriptures keep saying you're not looking deep enough. You're just not. We all feel there's something wrong. What we need is a true rest from our work, even in the midst of our work. We need that quietness, that tranquility. And where does that come from? Well, Ecclesiastes 2.24 says it comes from the hand of God. That life, that is really life and really worth it, is a gift from God. Satisfaction and joy in work is not something we can earn or manufacture. We receive it because it's a gift. Of all the things we strive so hard to get from our neighbors, approval, meaning, recognition, all this stuff, Ecclesiastes 2 speaks of how God is the one who gives that to us as a gift. Those who please God are the ones who trust in who He is. Ecclesiastes 2.26, For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. That word pleases is actually the word pleasure. It's the word pleasure. It's saying a believer or someone who trusts Jesus gives God pleasure. It's that God looks at you and He says, You are my child. And I love you. And you don't got to strive for all of these things to get everybody else to say these nice things about you because you are my child and you have value and worth. And I place upon you that value and worth. It is not something you have to strive to manufacture. I will give it to you. God, can you imagine that God looks at you because of what Christ has done and you fill his heart with delight? You give him pleasure. He looks at you and he's just like, I'm excited that you are my kid. And I think if we really knew that, I think if we could live in that, it would change everything about how we see that quietness and how we begin to rest in what he has actually said. I think we could even rest in our work from our work, if you understand kind of what that means. Zephaniah 3.14 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
I mean, I think if we could really, really get that and understand that, that our God exalts over us as he sings over us and he quiets us with his love, that God doesn't say, work a little harder, that God doesn't say, oh, yes, I guess you're doing it good enough now, that God just says, you give me pleasure and I delight in you because you are my child. I think it changes everything, that God would stand over us and God would embrace us, that we could be quieted with his love. And I think this is why when you get to the New Testament, it talks about the rest that Jesus brings to us. Like Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do you get that rest? You know, how do we know that God loves us like that? It's because Jesus simply says, come to me. He doesn't say, come and do all these things. He says, come to me and trust me, a person. He doesn't even say, oh, follow all my teachings. He says, come to me, who he is, what he has done, how he has worked to rescue us. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the rest that we need. When Jesus goes to the cross and he rises from the grave, it's to take away all this nasty stuff that separated us from God and us from one another. Jesus renews us back into relationship with God again because of what he has done. And God now looks at us. And God sings over us and he quiets us with with his love. Only Jesus can bring us that rest in what he has done, not what we do. And I think if we can begin to believe in that, it could change everything for us. Can you imagine being able to live your life in such a way that when somebody says something negative about you, it doesn't destroy you, that you don't feel like you need to destroy them back? Can you imagine actually being in relationships with other people where you say hard words to one another that may, that may make you feel like, oh man, I, I just got to be terrible, and, and you can stop and take a step back and go, no, but what God has spoken over me is this, so you can hear hard words, and you can hear truth, and actually begin to grow in relationship with one another because your value is not based upon what that other person said. It's based upon what God says about you. And no matter how bad at times you feel about some mistake that you have made, that doesn't in the end have to undo you because of what God has said over you. It completely changes how we see the world. It completely changes how we see everything. We begin to trust Him and His words that have been spoken over us in grace. Because this is one of the reasons that Element, we try to take you guys to communion every single week where you take that cracker and then it resembles Jesus' body who was broken for us. And so you break it and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. So you have this cracker and this blood that represents what he has done to rescue us. And that communion, we lay down all of the striving and all of the envy and all of the things we're running after. And we lay it all down and we understand what God has spoken over us. The hope that he has placed in our lives. That we don't have to worry about all these things that everybody else says about us. I I need this person to say this so I can feel this way about myself. No, you don't. What you need to understand is what Jesus has spoken over you, that God has brought us such great hope because he has called us into relationship and he loves us and he restores us and he is good and he is good. The band's going to come up, as they do. I'm going to invite you, if you would like to pray with somebody this morning, maybe you've been in a place in your life today where and what everybody says kind of redirects you and how you respond. You're always reacting to something somebody else has done. And you want someone to pray with you. They'd love to pray with you about that. Uh, maybe you're in a place today where you felt like everything you do, you have to do these things so God would actually like you. That God will only quiet you with his love if you do these certain things. They would love to pray with you about that. To, to walk into a better and deeper understanding 
of who God is, what grace actually entails, what the truth is that he's spoken over us because of what Christ has done to rescue us. I think when we do that, it's going to change how we see and live and understand everything around us because God is gracious and good. They're offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us and be part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's always a response. Uh, there's food and stuff outside. Grab something to eat. Take some sermon notes. Talk to some other people. Like, like what things when people say certain things to you, does it just destroy you inside? What things when people say about you, does it make you feel better? What ways are you working to try and get something from somebody else to give you purpose and meaning in your life? What ways are we doing? Because we all do that in different places and ways. I think to be honest enough about it with people who care about us, it's going to help us to grow to trust God more and the things that he has said. I think we need to come alongside one another and remind each other of God's great grace and hope that when we step next to each other and remind each other of what God has under rescue us and what God has spoken over us in Christ, I think it can change how we live and see everything around us. It'll change our views and our relationship with our friends, with our spouses, with our workplaces. And ultimately, first and foremost, it should change our relationship with God himself. So we'd be a people who are completely humble and undone because of his goodness. Let's be a people who begin to live out the understanding of what he has done to rescue us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your great hope. That you have chosen to love us, not because of all of our achievements and all the things that we have done. But you've chosen to love us because you yourself are good. And this morning I ask that you would have us begin to wrap our, not just our heads, but our hearts around that idea as well. The rest that we really need. The recognition we're all striving after is found because you are the one who sees who we are and all the stuff that we try to hide and yet you love us and redeem us anyway. And you call us your children because you love us. And God, the beauty of that is you don't just call us your children, you then call us your ambassadors. Because when we begin to understand what you have spoken over us and rest in that, we get to then go live out in front of everybody else in this world. The great hope that we now have, the restoration that we have received, the identity and value of our lives that come from you and not what anybody else says. So Father, have us here, truly here, the things that you have spoken. And have that then change us so we would live lives full of hope and trust of who you are. Thank you for rescuing us and saving us and speaking great words of hope that we would never imagine anybody could ever speak. But you do. Because your salvation is true. And your life is renewing. So teach us to live out that great new life that we have received. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.